Father, we approach this text with eager anticipation. We need it more than we need lunch, more than we need good health, more than we need money, more than we need a break. We know this text reveals something about our fallenness that we need exposed. We know this text reveals something about your character that we need to experience. We know this text reveals Christ, your son, our savior, the crucified one, the risen one. If, it, if, it, if at the end of this exposition we raise both hands and say, we see Christ, then it's been a success. It's been a good day. We don't have to remember this sermon for the rest of our lives. We just need it to meet us in our pain. Meet us in our hurt. Meet us in our confusion. Father, your word meets us wherever we are. So do the supernatural work of building your church with your word. This is our corporate plea. Amen. We are invested in the life of David. Our introduction to him came back in 1 Samuel. We met him around the age of 12 to 15. We watched little David grow up. From a young shepherd boy turned to mighty warrior, turned to king at age 30. In our text, David is in his 60s, at least, pushing 70. We've seen the good and the bad of David. We've seen him on his best day and on his worst day. Lately, it's been a lot of worse days. But in 2 Samuel 15, we see the return of the king we love. The old David is back. He's making a plan, calling the play. He's showing foresight. We see David, the scrapper, again. He's concerned about others. He's caring. He's showing tenderness. His faith kicks back into action. We get a glimpse of the old David, and it's glorious to behold. We took a week off from 2 Samuel, so let me catch you up in the narrative. David committed adultery with Bathsheba. He murdered her husband to cover it up. David's been experiencing the fallout from that sin ever since. First, his daughter Tamar was raped by her half-brother. David did nothing to defend her. Secondly, David's other son, Absalom, murdered his brother for committing that horrific crime. That son was the golden child, and Absalom knew David wouldn't be happy about it. Absalom ran for his life and lived for three years in exile. David refused to pursue his banished son. Long story, but David lets Absalom come back. He puts him under sort of a house arrest for two years until David's advisors convince him to make a public amends. He does, and Absalom is now living in Jerusalem and he's next in line to the throne. Here's what I have for you today. From the text, three movements. The political campaign, 2 Samuel 15, verses 1 through 6. The satanical conspiracy, 2 Samuel 15, 7 through 12. The tyrannical coup, 2 Samuel 15, 13 through 37. The political campaign, the satanical conspiracy, the tyrannical coup. 
As we walk through these three movements, we will pull out certain truths. There's a, a political truth. There's a, a crisis truth. A, a friend truth. A theological truth. A Christological truth. And finally, a truth just for non-Christians. They all arise naturally from the text, and we will encounter them as we work through the three movements. We'll take the movements one at a time. First, the political campaign. Notice verse 1. After this, Absalom got himself a chariot and horses and 50 men to run before him. Well, well, <laughs> Absalom got himself a chariot. He's got new wheels. Now, why is he in a chariot? Jerusalem is hilly and rocky. Chariots were useless considering the terrain. Unless, unless you're trying to make an impression, which is what he's doing. He's branding himself. He's, he's projecting the power of a king. He's got a mini fighting force running alongside the horse-drawn chariot. This scene looks like Secret Service bodyguards walking alongside the presidential limousine. Chariots were the stretch limo of the ancient world. This is a presidential motorcade. Absalom's posturing. He's posturing to launch a campaign. He's making a statement. Entering the streets of Jerusalem as a king would in all his grandeur. He's cultivating a very attractive image. He's surrounded by pomp and circumstance. It's a display of power. Look at Absalom. He's on the chariot surrounded by 50 bodyguards. He looks like a million bucks. Long hair blowing in the wind. He's lionized by the adoring public. He defended the honor of his sister. And now he's back able to freely roam the streets of Jerusalem. He's hungry for political advancement. Verse 1, he's posturing. Verses 2 through 5, he's promising. Verse 2. And Absalom used to rise early and stand beside the way of the gate. And when any man had a dispute to come before the king for judgment, Absalom would call to him and say, From what city are you? And when he said, your servant is of such and such a tribe in Israel, Absalom would say to him, see, your claims are good and right, but there is no man designated by the king to hear you. Then Absalom would say, oh, that I were judge in the land. Then every man with a dispute or cause might come to me, and I would give him justice. <laughs> this is interesting. Absalom parks himself at the city gate. At this strategic location, he would intercept people coming to speak with the king about a judicial matter. Remember, David was king of Israel and judge in Israel. He did all the judicial services. People brought their controversies to the king and he would make a ruling on them. Two times in this book, people have done this. Nathan brought a case to David. The woman of Tekoa brought a case to David. People were conditioned to seeing the king execute judgments and deal with matters of justice. 
by planting himself on the main thoroughfare, Absalom basically stands outside of the courthouse, positioned to intercept citizens seeking justice. And he tells them, King David, his cases are packed up a mile long. His case log is longer than the Nile. You, you'll never get justice on this issue. I, I hate to tell you this, but you might as well just go home. I wish I was judging Israel. If I were, you wouldn't have to turn around and go home. I would rule in your favor. Absalom is arousing dissatisfaction among the citizens. He's exploiting the delays caused by the justice system. Absalom is, is, is ready to listen and, and eager to help. But he doesn't hold that position. He's making promises. I'd speed up justice. There would be no back, backlog on the court docket if I were in charge. The king is not willing to provide the resources needed to, to have your case heard. I would. He's promising them anything they want. You would win big if I were judge. He's flattering them. He's exciting their imaginations. You need me as your judge. Read between the lines. The judge in Israel was the king of Israel. He wants the throne. He wants the Oval Office. Oh, the country would be far better if I were in charge of justice. Don't forget, he's talking about his father. He's positioning himself against his father. Absalom is implying that he will decide in everyone's favor. Everyone thinks he's on their side. But that's impossible. These cases consisted of Israelites against Israelites. The nature of being a judge is that you must rule against someone. How can they all be right? The citizens aren't seeing this. They are just drinking up the campaign promises. He's gaining widespread support. This is politics 101. Absalom aligns his message to appeal to the people. I will champion your cause. Cut your taxes, increase your social security benefits, implement sword control, lower gas prices, get rid of student loan debt, raise minimum wage. He's a spin doctor, spinning everything in his favor. He's a politician. He's either overstating the case backlog or just making the entire thing up. I really don't believe this was a valid concern. Nathan and the woman of Tekoa were able to bring their case before the king without any delay and David ruled on it on the spot. Absalom is a hollow man pasted together with scraps of political slogans. His slogans are catchy but mean nothing. He's politically ambitious and he'll say anything to get the people to like him. Campaigns really haven't changed that much, have they? Which leads us to a political truth. Do not listen to the empty promises of charismatic politicians. Stake your life on the unmovable promises of God. Do not listen to the empty promises of charismatic politicians. Stake your life on the unmovable promises of God. Israel, the 12 tribes in our text... They're not without fault, 
because they are drinking up all those empty promises. And you are not without fault for doing the same thing today. They allowed themselves to be duped. Don't allow yourself to be duped. There's a famous newspaper editor named H.L. Mencken. He lived in the 1800s and he summarized politics well when he said, a politician preaches doctrines he knows to be untrue to men he knows to be idiots. <laughs> the cult of celebrity and the cult of charismatic leaders wasn't just alive and well in the Old Testament. It's alive and well today. It's style over substance. They, like Absalom, make promises that only God's chosen one can fulfill. They want to take the place of God's king in your life. Some of you are letting them. Absaloms cannot succeed when the people have a rock-solid understanding of God's plan for the nations. Charismatic leaders do have the ability to convince nations, but they fail to convince those who have a handle on good theology. Politics, Absalom style, succeeds only where good theology doesn't. At its core, their message competes with God's chosen king. Verse 5. And, wherever a man came, and whenever a man came near to pay homage to Absalom, he would put out his hand and take hold of him and kiss him. I'm going to shake your hand. You're not going to shake my hand. Bring it on in. He gives everyone a big hug. Whenever someone tried to pay Absalom special honor, he shrugged it off and said, I'm your equal. He made them feel important. He mastered active listening. He, he touched their hand and nodded his head as they spoke. When you talked to him, he, he looked you in the eye and smiled. He made you feel like you're the only man on the planet. He's building a reputation of being a man of the people. And he's saying things like there's, you know, there's 12 layers between you and King David. You'll never get to him. If I were king, it'd be a different story. I'm approachable. See, Absalom is not requiring the normal procedures of deference. He's on their level. He's one of them. Politicians still do this. Loosen the tie. Unbutton the collar, fist bump. Absalom's rising in the polls. What a nice fella he is. What a super chap. Not like our current judge and king. Look at him kissing that baby. And when the music came on, he, he danced for a second. Did you see that? He's a humble, sympathetic, civil-minded opponent of King David. His folksy charm and campaign promises have the people wrapped around his finger. Verse 1, he's posturing. Verse 2 through 5, he's promising. Verse 6, he's pilfering. The first thing I want you to notice is the alliteration. I alliterate once a year, and every time I do, mass conversions take place. <laughs> I expect today to be no different. Verse 1, posturing for what? 
posturing to launch a political campaign. Verse 2 through 5, he's laying out campaign promises. Verse 6, he's pilfering. But what is he pilfering? Read the verse. Thus Absalom did to all Israel who came to the king for judgment. So Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. He succeeds in cultivating discontent in the current administration. He's a loyalty thief. He's a moral larcen. He pickpocketed people's allegiances. He, he's a devotion bandit. Those of you who were alive in the 80s. Not many of you. <laughs> Those of you who were alive in the 80s, do you, do you remember the, the Hamburglar? McDonald's, the Hamburglar? Absalom is the heart burglar. They, they, they never once saw through his self-advertisement. They are deceived, duped. It's not a wrong translation. It's not a wrong translation to translate it this way. He stole the brains of Israel. This is an unscrupulous politician at work. He steals brains. The political campaign... Now the satanical conspiracy, verse 7. At the end of four years, Absalom said to the king, Please, let me go and pay my vow, which I have vowed to the Lord in Hebron. For your servant vowed a vow while I lived in Geshur and Aram, saying, If the Lord will indeed bring me back to Jerusalem, then I will offer worship to the Lord. Absalom ran this campaign for four years. For four years, he plotted the downfall of his father. Forty-eight months spent conspiring against King David. 1,460 days of schmoozing the people and feeding them campaign promises. Absalom tells David this lie that he needs to fulfill a vow to God. He needs to go and worship and sacrifice to Yahweh. He's using worship as a cover story for his conspiracy. He's now compounding his sin. Adding to it irreverence to God. Which is a blasphemous sin, by the way. When you are irreverent to God, it is disgustingly sinful. Absalom is cloaking his sin in godliness. Absalom says, when I was banished, I, I, I promised I would do this if God ever brought me back to Jerusalem. Oh, oh, really, Absalom? Well, I just want to ask you a question, Absalom. Why didn't you fulfill the vows sooner? The Torah required vows to be fulfilled quickly, not four years later. Why does he want to go to Hebron? Hebron had a history. It's where Abraham was buried. It's where Absalom was born. It's the former capital of Judah. Maybe people in the city resented David for moving the capital to Jerusalem. It's the place where David was anointed king. Who knows the reason? I'm sure there were reasons, plural. We know for sure Absalom is leaving under religious pretext. It's a strategic cover story. The whole thing is fabricated. Alistair Begg points out that this is the last time Absalom ever mentions God. In fact, he contests it's the only time he ever mentions God. 
The only time he mentions God, he does it deviously. He takes God's name in vain. Verse 9. The king said to Absalom, go in peace. So Absalom arose and went to Hebron. Now let me pause here. It's interesting that the last recorded words of David to his son were, Shalom, go. Go in peace. How ironic that he would be invited to go in peace when he was actually going in war. David has been successfully manipulated by his son again. Verse 10. But Absalom sent secret messengers throughout all the tribes of Israel saying, As soon as you hear the sound of the trumpet, then say, Absalom is king at Hebron. With Absalom went 200 men from Jerusalem who were invited guests. And they went in their innocence and knew nothing. Absalom's been patient for four years. And now he moves with remarkable speed. This conspiracy is, is well organized. Once the trumpet is blown, representatives already spread out all over the 12 tribes shout, Absalom is king. This gives the perception of really strong support all over the kingdom. The text goes to links to mention that the 200 people traveling with Absalom from Jerusalem were not in on the conspiracy. However, with the appearance of strong support, they went right along with it. Absalom even holds a coronation ceremony with sacrifices the whole nine yards. Verse 12. And while Absalom was offering the sacrifices, he sent for Ahithophel, the Gilonite, David's counselor from his city of Gilo. And the conspiracy grew strong. And the people with Absalom kept increasing. He continues to galvanize his base. He's now gained widespread support for this revolt. News of the conspiracy eventually reaches David, verse 13. And a messenger came to David saying, The hearts of the men of Israel have gone after Absalom. Here's that word again. Heart. David's eyes bug out and shock strikes his soul as he realizes he's been evicted from the hearts of the citizens. This unnamed messenger says the revolt is underway and it's growing. The whole populace poured out to Hebron to see this unusually handsome, good-looking, and athletic young man, Absalom. And here's what you need to know about Absalom. He appeared to serve people. But he was using people to serve himself. He didn't care about their court cases. He cared about that throne. He wasn't motivated by service. He was motivated by political ambition. People were a means to his end. He's disingenuous. He does not care about people. They are tools to build his kingdom. Before we leave this movement, you might be asking, Kyle, I can see how this would be a strategic conspiracy. But how is it a satanic conspiracy? Here's how. When Absalom drew the hearts 
To himself, it was more than a political act. It was a spiritual act. Their hearts were to be with God's king. This is not just an aggressive campaign. It's an attack on God's plan. Absalom is fighting against God's revealed will. He's campaigning against God's chosen one. God promised a seed through David which would bring the Messiah. In this way, the rise of Absalom is the rise of an antichrist. In Genesis, it told us this would happen throughout redemptive history. The seed of the serpent would try to destroy the seed of the woman. This is Satan's seed making war on the offspring of the woman. David is the Christ figure. Absalom is the Antichrist figure. He's projecting messianic images on himself. His campaign is satanic because he's rejecting God's king. The political campaign, the satanical conspiracy, the tyrannical coup. It's a tyrannical coup. It's it's cruel. Absalom has been waiting for the right time, four years, to enact it. Let's watch it take place, verse 14. Then David said to all his servants who were with him at Jerusalem, Arise, let us flee, or else there will be no escape for us from Absalom. Go quickly, lest he overtake us quickly and bring us ruin bring ruin on us, and strike the city with the edge of the sword. And the king's servant said to the king, Behold, your servants are ready to do whatever the Lord, the king, my lord the king decides. So the king went out and all his household after him, and the king left ten concubines to keep the house. David's in the upper room, possibly roof of his palace when he hears of this coup. How does he process the information? He commands his team to get up and get out of the White House. He doesn't question the intelligence report. He doesn't go to a safe room. He simply processes the information and makes a calculated decision. For the first time in his brilliant military career, David orders his people to flee. Flee? David doesn't flee, he fights. He doesn't run from a battle. He runs to a battle. I, th I thought you said, Kyle, we would see the return of the old David. You do. Quick, calculated, master of military movements. For the first time in a long time, David makes the right decision. His decision to withdraw was strategically sound and tactically necessary. He will not subject God's holy city to siege. He doesn't want Absalom to slaughter the city residents. He decides to withdraw and declare Jerusalem an open city. Verse 17. And the king went out and all the people after him. And they halted at the last house. And all his servants passed by him, and all the Cherethites, and all the Pelethites, and all the 600 Gittites who had followed him from Gath passed on before the king. I find this interesting. While leaving the city, David stops at the last house, the far house. This was apparently on the edge of the city. 
David will halt here and watch his army and friends and family march by. David stands at the outskirt of the city and takes stock. How many are with me? And how many decided to turn to the dark side? This is a true march past. He watches as Gentile after Gentile after Gentile marches past. These outsiders are remaining loyal to God's king. They are proving to be true Israel. Not all Israel is of Israel. These Gentiles have been loyal to David for years and in these dark days remain loyal. The coup is forcing people to take sides. In verse 19, something strange happens. David stops the march and he speaks to one man in particular, Ittai, verse 19. Then the king said to Ittai, the Gittite, why do you also go with us? Go back and stay with the king. For you are a foreigner and also an exile from your home. You came only yesterday and shall I today make you wonder about with us? Since I go, I know not where. Go back and take your brothers with you. And may the Lord show steadfast love. It's just good to hear David speak of the Lord again, isn't it? May the Lord show steadfast love and faithfulness to you. Ittai is apparently a recent recruit. And David says, you don't have to enter into exile with us. And with your wife and your little kids, it's going to be a hard road. Go back and stay with the king. But you're the king, Ittai responds. Verse 21, but Ittai answered the king, as, as the Lord lives and as my lord the king lives, wherever my lord the king shall be, whether for death or for life, there also will your servant be. And David said to Ittai, go then. Pass on. So Atai, the Gittite, passed on with all his men and all the little ones, all the little ones who were with him. No matter how grim the outlook, this Gittite from Gath, this Philistine who had pagan roots with Goliath, decided to remain loyal to God's king. King, Absalom has youth and zeal in the majority. But he's not God's anointed king. They say he's the future and to bet on you is a losing bet. But wherever the king goes, I will go. Now you must feel the weight of this decision, of this moment. This is a monarchy. In order for Absalom to be on the throne, King David must die along with all those men, women, and children who choose to stick with him. David doesn't want this man to come under compulsion. Atai says, I'm coming voluntarily. Atai is loyal to the core. He vows allegiance unto death. He follows unflinchingly. So hear me, church. It's not wrong to take your wife and children down a hard road if you're following God's king down that road. Ittai is an island of fidelity in a sea of treachery. He's a Ruth, staying with Naomi no matter what. The narrator picks up the story as soon as the people pass by the king. Look at verse 24. And Abiathar, 
came up, and behold, Zadok came also with all the Levites bearing the ark of the covenant of God. And they set down the ark of God until the people all passed out of the city. So, so apparently the line ended, and then the priests pick up the ark and begin following them. But David stops them dead in their tracks, verse 25. Then the king said to Zadok, carry the ark of God back into the city. If I find favor in the eyes of the Lord, he will bring me back and let me see both it and his dwelling place. But if he says, I have no pleasure in you, behold, here I am. Let him do to me what seems good to him. Now you remember the ark has played a big role in First and Second Samuel. Israel at one time viewed it as a lucky charm that went with them into war. Lucky charms are good for breakfast, but not for battle. Perhaps these priests thought the ark would bring David favor and protection while on the run. David doesn't have any superstitious feelings toward the ark. He's not focusing on Yahweh's furniture. He depends on Yahweh's favor. He will not use God. He will submit to God. The ark belongs to the city. And it would be a sin to take it out and treat it like a lucky rabbit's foot. David is trusting God to bring about his promises in another way. David is refusing to sin. God promised David he would be king. Promised him a long dynasty. It doesn't feel like God is keeping his promise. But David's not controlled by feelings. David is controlled by faith. He's controlled by God's promises. Your soul can hold tightly to God's promise even when your feelings do not. David never lost sight of where his security lay. His security did not lie in the cedar house that he had built for himself or the ark. His security rested in a promise. If I find favor in the eyes of the Lord, he will bring me back. David says, if God says, I have no pleasure in you, behold, here I am. Let God do to me what seems good to him. David trusts his outcome to the hands of God. He's resigning himself to the will of God, whatever that may be. All the while praying, Psalms prove that, and making wise decisions. Which leads us to a crisis truth. A crisis truth. In times of crisis... It makes sense to entrust your destiny to the Lord while at the same time praying for divine aid and making wise decisions. In times of crisis, it makes sense to entrust your destiny to the Lord while at the same time praying for divine aid and making wise decisions. The Lord does not disengage your brain in moments of crisis. Move forward, holding on to the promises of God and refusing to sin. It's a mix of faith and action on your part. Beloved, don't compound the crisis by making further sinful choices. You may be leaving your throne, but God is still on His throne. You may not see the situation clearly, but God sees it perfectly. His unfolding plan does not rest in your understanding of it. It rests in his omnipotence. 
David tells the priests with the ark, many Levites as well, he says, I, I want you to go back into the city and be eyes and ears on the inside. And they agree. Then, God's king leaves God's city. This is a really sad scene. Even those who were not refugees, those who stayed in the city, understood something terrible was happening. Look back at verse 23. And all the land wept aloud as all the people passed by. God's king leaves Jerusalem and the people wept. The verse continues. And the king crossed the brook Kidron and all the people passed on toward the wilderness. Where does David plan to escape? He's going to the wilderness. This is the second time he's fled to the wilderness. When Saul tried to kill him, he escaped to the wilderness. An innocent man on the run. We get a glimpse of the old David here. A fugitive escaping with his life, living in caves, dodging the bloodhounds. Verse 30. David went up the, the ascent of the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went barefoot and with his head covered. And all the people who were with him covered their heads and they went up weeping as they went. The Bible was written in tears and it will yield tears. David will be hunted and hounded. Where are his shoes? He's barefoot and in mourning. He's a weeping king. David crosses the brook Kidron, then climbs the steep ascent 2,600 feet above sea level. And once he reaches the Mount of Olives, while on the Mount of Olives, verse 31, it was told David, Ahithophel is among the conspirators with Absalom. And David, and David prayed, O Lord, please turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. It's bad news after bad news. Just when things couldn't get worse, David hears his closest advisor betrayed him. He's now advising Absalom. David feels surrounded by conspirators. He prayed in Psalm 41.9, Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. He's talking about Ahithophel. Which leads us to a friend truth. And the friend truth is this. Do friends despise and forsake you? Do you think this should be foreign to your Christian experience? This is not uncommon for the Christian. You must learn to process the betrayal in a gospel-centered way. This betrayal leads David to prayer. He's praying. He takes his heart to God. He falls on the Lord when his resources are depleted. So thank God that he depleted David's resources. A tragedy for which we do not have a solution 
sometimes makes us recommit our dependence on the Lord. David's prayer, O Lord, please turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness, is answered in the very next verse. Look at verse 32. While David was coming to the summit where God was worshipped, behold, Hushai, the archite, came to meet him with his coat torn and dirt on his head. And David said to him, If you go on with me, you will be a burden to me. But if you return to the city and say to Absalom, I will be your servant, O king, as I have been your father's servant in, past time, in time past, so now I will be your servant, then you will defeat for me the counsel of Ahithophel. Oh, what a friend we have in Hushai. He agrees to work as a mole. He becomes a double agent. He, David sends Hushai to subvert the counsel of Ahithophel. The, the suspense and intrigue, you feel it? It's building. David now has priests and Hushai back in Jerusalem. They make up his spy network. We will see how it turns out next week. But I still have three remaining truths for you. A theological truth. David is expelled east of Eden away from God's city. David is expelled east of Eden away from God's city. Absalom's following grew so big, David had to leave the city. When David left Jerusalem, he went east. East through the Kidron Valley, east to the Mount of Olives, east to the wilderness. Eastward movement in the Bible is always a movement away from God. David is, is taking the standard route to exile. In the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve were expelled east. We are still east of Eden. David's situation is sort of a reenactment of Eden. God gave David a glorious kingdom, a garden kingdom, and he sinned and had to leave. What sent David east? What sent David to the wilderness? His son? Yes. His sin? Yes. Absalom? Yes. David's desire for women and murder? Yes. This is the second time David fled to the same wilderness, but this time he's not an innocent man. Don't forget he's facing some of this because of his adultery with Bathsheba, and murder of Uriah. Nathan predicted all these things would happen. The dark and dangerous clouds that led to David's departure have been gathering for some time. Absalom's rebellion is partly due to David's sin. Even David's trusted advisor who betrayed him, Ahithophel, that was Bathsheba's grandfather. No wonder he turned on David. Church, all your yeses have a harvest. And all your noes have a harvest. David is harvesting the sins he had previously sown. So not only is this a reenactment of Eden, it's also a reversal of Exodus. Five times in this chapter, the words pass by are used. Pass by, pass by, pass by. The same words are used elsewhere to describe Israel's exodus. The same words occur 22 times in just one of the exodus passages. This is a reverse exodus. 
Instead of exiting Egypt to God's promised land, David is, is exiting God's promised land and entering Egypt, the wilderness. So theological truth, now a Christological truth. David wasn't the only king to leave Jerusalem, cross the Kidron Valley, and climb the Mount of Olives. David wasn't the only king to leave Jerusalem, cross the Kidron Valley, and climb the Mount of Olives. Approximately 1,000 years later, the Lord Jesus Christ would leave the same city, Jerusalem, accompanied by a few followers, cross the same Kidron Valley, and climb the same Mount of Olives. Each of the gospel records recount this short but excruciating walk from the city to the mountain. Jesus would retrace the steps of David 1,000 years later. His feet would hit the same dirt and he would climb the same rocks. David became a rejected king. Jesus became a rejected king. David was in an upper room when he heard a coup was in the works. Jesus was in an upper room when he heard a coup was in the works. Both David and Jesus said to their men, Rise, let us go from here. David wept as he left. Jesus wept as he left. David's humiliation foreshadows Christ's humiliation. David was betrayed by Ahithophel on the Mount of Olives. Jesus was betrayed by Judas with a kiss on the Mount of Olives. In fact, Jesus quoted David. Psalm 41.9 that I read earlier, David's words about Ahithophel, Jesus quoted those words and applied them to Judas Iscariot. David's suffering in exile anticipate Jesus' suffering in exile. However, there is one key difference. David's hardship was the result of his own sin. While Jesus, who never sinned, Walk that path for your transgressions to reconcile you to God. David's sufferings were tied to his sin. The sufferings of Christ were tied to our sins. Jesus was thoroughly aware that he was treading the path of King David. He was convinced of this. And that truth should make your Old and New Testament come alive. By way of comparison and contrast, David's move out of Jerusalem prefigures Jesus' move outside of the gate where he bore reproach. This is the shadow of Christ cast back into the Old Testament. Jesus is retracing David's steps, but does it sinlessly. He's the sinless David. God's chosen king who walked the hard path and sinned not. This is what he came to do. To walk sinlessly where you should have walked. And he did it in your place. One final truth. Just for non-Christians. There is still a political campaign a sentinical conspiracy and a tyrannical coup going on right now against God's chosen king. Do not be a part of it. There is still a political campaign, a satanical conspiracy and a tyrannical coup going on right now against God's chosen king. Non-Christian, don't be a part of it. This coup will be put down. It may seem like you're part of the majority, 
The media is with you. The elites are with you. The influencers are with you. They are all with you in your opposition to God's king. But friend, Jesus Christ will put all his enemies down. They will face the wrath of the king. He will place all of those who are part of the coup in hell to burn forever. I am not here to scare you. I am here to awaken you. You submit to this king or you pay the eternal price. God, we follow your king and none other. We submit to his lordship even if it's not popular. No matter how hard the path, Father, we know we're always on the right path when we're following your king. Help us to stay on that path this week. To walk it faithfully. Amen. Let's stand together.